You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood. How you doing? In this episode, we're going to look at a biblical understanding of community. And I'd like to take a moment to recognize as we start out here that the word community is incredibly loaded in and of itself. One of the most integral parts of what it even means to be a human is the way we each exist within a network of relationships with other people. So this is a concept that literally everyone on the planet already has thoughts about. And for better or worse, we all tend to import that mental framework into this conversation. To make matters worse, in recent years, the word community has become sort of a buzzword. Probably because those of us who inhabit postmodern Western societies are generally starved for connections with other people that feel genuine. In fact, out of all of human history, we're living in the time that has the most awareness of community as a concept, and yet we have the least experience of it. This is especially true among followers of Jesus. Community is something that Christians are supposed to know the most about but I'm willing to say that it's something a lot of us do remarkably badly. So before we even get started on what a community is or isn't, or how the Bible says we should participate in community with one another, let's go back to the absolute basics, square one, which is that God is a community. To clarify, when I say God is a community, I don't mean that any community is a form of God. This is one of those things that you can apply the principle one way, but it breaks down the other way, like how the vehicle that I drive is a pickup truck, but not all pickup trucks are my vehicle. We Christians believe in and serve one God, singular. But God also consists of three distinct entities, whom we call the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The concept that three of them can still be one God is something that we call the Trinity which is just a mashup of the Latin words tria, meaning three, and unity, which pretty much means the same thing it means in English. All three persons are God in every sense of the word, and they're so perfectly united as a community that we are able to talk about them as one God. It's a mystery that we've been struggling to explain well for about 2,000 years now, so I've already accepted that we won't resolve it in this episode I do, however, plan to do a Trinity episode sometime in a later season. For today, though, our takeaway is that when we say God is relational, we don't just mean that he's friendly or that he's interested in you getting to know him. Those statements are true, but God is relational in that God is a relationship that Father, Son, and Spirit participate in. The Bible says that when God made humanity, he formed us in his image. We were designed as echoes, miniature versions of what God is like. And a big part of that is our relationality. We were designed to be connected to one another, to have the edges of our humanity overlap with others in a way that defines and shapes who we are. The Bible describes a community composed of Christians who are relationally connected both to God and to one another. And the name that we've given to that community is the church. Now, a lot of people hear church, 
and immediately think of a formal organization with committees and bylaws and maybe a board of trustees. Others may hear church and immediately think of certain styles of architecture. But the closest the Bible comes to talking about the church as a building is when it describes us as living stones built up together to collectively form a temple for God to dwell in, within ourselves, and in our midst as a people group. Let me say that again. God lives in you and me, not in a building. And that's really amazing for three reasons. First of all, it means he's closer to us. He becomes a part of who we are as a people. Second, it means that we don't have to bring people to a building or to a specified holy place to help them encounter God. If he lives in you, you're a holy place, and anyone who doesn't know him yet can come to you to find him. That also makes us all priests, in a sense, because we become representatives of God to the rest of humanity and representatives of humanity back to God through prayer. Third, it means that we're all equal. If you're a follower of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit of God that lives in me also lives in you. He also lives in someone who just became a Christian a few moments ago, as well as in someone who's been doing this for decades. Being the dwelling place of God means there are no super saints. We're all saints. And we're also sinners. All of us still need forgiveness, and we're all equally loved and valued by God. The word church originally meant something more like the assembly or the congregation. It's the group that God has called and assembled together to become his people. We, the church, are united around our common passion for God. Now, there are two ways that are actually found in the Bible of looking at or defining what the church is. The Bible uses that word these two ways somewhat interchangeably. On the one hand, when we talk about the church, we're talking about all the Christians in the world right now or who have ever lived in all of history. Because we all have the same God and because we are united with him and in him, they all together are the church along with you and me. Sometimes you'll see this usage of the word capitalized or you'll hear people talking about the church with a capital C. That's the universal church. There's only one of those, which is important for our sense of unity with other Christians. The other definition of church applies on a more localized level. Yes, the church is a global phenomenon, but it's made up of thousands, even millions, of smaller units that are also rightfully called churches. These are the individual congregations that might meet in so-called church buildings, or they're even smaller groups that meet in each other's homes or in a coffee shop or wherever. I've already spoken at length on this podcast about the immense benefit that can be derived through long-term relationships with a group of fellow believers. So this week, I'll spare you from that rant, except to say that you need that in your life. It takes a lot of time to really get to know people, and it's best to immerse yourself in the community of a small group of them so that you can all grow together and keep each other accountable. Two other uses of the word church that you'll see on occasion are that it could refer to all of the Christians in a particular geographical region, like the church throughout the city of Virginia Beach, or the church in Australia, which is a collective term for all the Christians who live there. The other and final usage I want to look at today is for an association of many congregations, like the Roman Catholic Church, or the United Methodist Church. 
These are what we call denominations, groups of Christians who band together around a shared trait that they feel very strongly about, such as a distinct theological perspective or a practical element of their life together that's more specific than the basic beliefs and practices shared by the rest of Christianity. In recent years, there's been a lot of talk throughout the greater universal church about whether or not denominations should even exist. That's a fair question, and there are good points to be made by both sides. The word denomination implies giving a name to something. When we adopt these denominational labels, they become identities that define who we are to some degree. And while that's not wrong in and of itself, there is a point where it can become dangerous. The key is to honestly ask ourselves what each label means about us and to us. If I say I'm this or that kind of Christian, does that imply any degree of superiority or separation from any other group of Christians? When I say I have a certain type of theological outlook, is that simply a convenient way for me to summarize otherwise complex details about the way I think and feel? Or is it to form a faction over and against anyone whose honest belief in God is different? Does it put up a wall between us, or is my heart still open to you on the basis of what we share as followers of Jesus? The bottom line here is that if there's any room in my denominational identity to respect and admire yours, if I can still have fellowship with you, and if I can serve and worship God alongside you, even though you might belong to another group within the church, then denominations are all right. And in some cases, it may even be beneficial for us to categorize ourselves in this way. On the other hand, if we divide into sides that oppose one another, if we take on an us-versus-them mentality, that's the point where we've stepped beyond what's helpful by introducing division into a community that was designed to emulate the oneness of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the many writers of the Bible looked for, searched for, and even invented language to describe the amazing things that they saw God doing in their community as a result of their shared faith in Jesus Christ, they ended up using a wide array of analogies to describe the church. So let's look at a few of those. One of my favorites is where they employed family terminology to explain our connectedness, both to God and to one another. As I said earlier, God is relational, and he calls us to be in a relationship with him that goes beyond doctrines, rituals, and commandments. In scripture, God is called our Father because we've been adopted into his family through our association with Jesus. That makes us one family as his beloved children, and any two believers around the world are brothers and sisters in Christ because they're also members of that same family. Collectively, the Bible also describes us, the church, as Christ's bride, though I'll admit that analogy definitely breaks down in a few places. The point here is we are a family, even though we don't always act like it. And to be fair, we often don't act like it. Another set of terms that you see throughout the pages of Scripture is that the church is a nation, a people group, or a kingdom. On the one hand, we all have our own cultural and ethnic backgrounds, and God never asks us to abandon those when we start to follow him. But on the other hand, we've transferred our ultimate loyalty to the king of kings, who is God himself. That means we're supposed to adopt the culture of his kingdom. In a sense, we live as dual citizens, with one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. 
The tricky part is knowing what to do when those two citizenships clash. We call this being in the world, but not of the world. And we live in that sense of tension every day. I know plenty of Christians in my culture who are fiercely loyal to God, right up to the point where God asks them to give up a part of their national or political loyalties. But I know precious few who show by their actions that God comes first and everything else is second. My passport says that I'm a citizen of the United States, and there's nothing wrong with that. But my faith says I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, and we're fooling ourselves if we think he's willing to take a back seat to whatever else we happen to devote ourselves to. We can keep our distinctiveness, but we also adapt to accommodate our new identity. We all have the same father, the same king, the same savior. So it doesn't make sense when Christians start dividing against one another because of what they look like or where they live or who they voted for. We sometimes forget that in a family, and even throughout a kingdom, there's plenty of room for unity within diversity. We all have different temperaments, personalities, gifts, interests, perspectives, and experiences. Beyond even that, God has called people from every culture, language, country, and ethnic group on the face of the earth to join this family. Because we are brothers and sisters, I can meet someone on the other side of the planet who looks and sounds and even lives nothing like me, and we can still love and accept one another because we know we have the same Father and we follow the same Jesus. Together, despite all the things that would seem to separate us, we're one family, one people, one church. One final analogy that comes up a lot in the Bible is that the church is Christ's body, and that each of us is a member or a part of that body. I'm reminded here of John Donne, the 17th century English poet, who famously observed that no man is an island. What he meant by that wasn't just that we're all part of something bigger like the human race, or that we're naturally social beings who crave human interaction. I think Dunn was going after something that runs even deeper, that we're all connected to one another in ways we don't even understand, such that your well-being affects mine, and vice versa. If you think about it, each of your body parts exists primarily to serve the others, not itself. At face value, I realize that sounds like a bit of a bummer. After all, if I'm the heart, my immediate thought is to pump all the blood to myself to make sure I get enough for me. But of course, it can't work out that way in real life. If the heart only pumps blood to itself, then it's not going to the lungs to pick up oxygen or to the intestines for nutrients. That previously life-giving blood would become useless in a matter of seconds. Moreover, if the brain isn't getting any blood flow, then it isn't even telling the heart to pump in the first place. The medical community has a technical term for this exact scenario. They call it being dead. Instead, the absolute best and wisest thing the heart can do is to pump that blood to all the other parts connected to it. And the very same thing is true for us. We were made to receive life from each other which means we were also made to give life to each other. And to the degree that you look out for yourself first, you're missing out on the exchange of fresh life that Jesus wants to give you, often by using his body, the church, as the instrument of your fulfillment. He also wants to use us as his hands and feet, his arms, and his voice to serve the world and proclaim his love. 
We are God's plan to change the world. That promise is actually even more exciting than it sounds, and we're going to unpack it in the next episode. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. Please join me next week. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.